I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Mitre's Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Memoir, How We're Shaped by Elsewhere, featuring Phil Brown, Hung Lee and Sasanke Misamang in conversation with Sunil Badami, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Mitre's Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. It's interesting, you know, people are always asking me uh, where I'm from. <laughs> and I tell them, Sydney, <laughs> because that's where I'm from. But they always say, no, where are you really from? And I say, well, Blacktown. But don't tell anyone. <laughs> we don't want to affect the property values. <laughs> but, of course, like so many Fellow Australians, over 52% of us born overseas or to immigrant parents, as we can tell you, being asked, always being asked where you're really from can sometimes make you wonder who you really are. You know, uh, the Italian writer Aldo Busi once observed that we travel like lobsters. Our heads are always tucked over our shoulders and we're doing all the travelling on the journey home. But what does that mean when home could be too or more different places? Are we, as Yedang once said, are we who we are because of where we are or are we shaped by somewhere else? Well, today with writers Phil Brown, Sasanki Msimyang and Hung Lee, we'll ask those questions and more to discover how where we are or might be might shape who we are and also how we might be able to shape those places too. So it now gives me very great pleasure to introduce our guest this morning. Hung Lee is a violinist turned comedian who first made his mark in 1987 as the winner of Hey Hey It's Saturday's Red Faces. <laughs> Thank you. Since then, he's appeared at numerous comedy festivals and venues both here and overseas and made documentaries for the ABC, SBS and Discovery Channel, as well as appearing in the films in films including The Wog Boy, Fat Pizza and Broken Hill. And Hung's memoir, The Crappiest Refugee, was published by a firm press in 2018. Everybody, Hung Lee. Hello. Hello. Little bit of uh, <laughs> walk and spring roll there, yes. isn't it, Hung? I rub you a wrong time. Sisonki <laughs> Imsmeng uh, was born in exile to South African parents and raised in Zambia, Kenya, and Canada before studying in the US. Her family returned to South Africa after apartheid was abolished in the early 1990s. And Sisonki has held fellowships at Yale University, Aspen Institute, and the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. She's also a regular contributor to The Guardian, Daily Maverick and New York Times and now lives in Perth, Australia, where she's the head of oral storytelling at the Centre for Stories. She's the author of the affecting memoir Always Another Country and the unflinching resurrection of Winnie Mandela about the rise and fall and rise again of one of South Africa's most controversial political figures. Ladies and gentlemen, Sisanki Msimang. Uh, Phil Brown is the arts editor of the Courier Mail and has a popular column in the Brisbane News. He's written a range of national for a range of national and international newspapers and magazines, and he's the author of two books of verse, Plastic Parables and An Accident in the Evening. Sounds intriguing. <laughs> Both of them. Uh, his book of humorous travel stories, Travels with My Angst, 
I see what you did there, was shortlisted for the Arts Queensland Steel Rudd Award at the 2005 Queensland Premier's Literary Awards. From 1963 to 1970, he lived in Hong Kong where his father ran a construction company and his memoir, The Kowloon Kid, published by Transit Lounge, is is an account of his family's life in China and Hong Kong since the 1930s. Please welcome Phil Brown and all our guests today. Joe-san. <laughs> so now the historian Paul Gilroy observed that for many migrants, the experience of migration brings a shift in perspective. No longer where you're from, but where you're at. Where are you really from, Sisonke? You were born in Zambia. You still have a South African passport. You've lived all over the world. So where are you really from and how does that influence or inform where you've been or where you're at now? Um, hmm. So I'm South African, uh, and that's where I'm from, uh, despite all the places that I've lived, um, because that's always been my primary identity. Um, even before I ever set foot in South Africa, I was South African, um, because my family was deprived of that um, opportunity to live there. And so everything about our lives was oriented around this idea that one day we would, uh, you know, go home. Uh, And, you know, when you're born in exile, the defining thing about your life is the place you're supposed to be. It's not the place you are. It's definitely not the place you're at. It's the place that you're working towards going. And I remember very clearly, like, by the time I was about 15, you know, my parents would constantly talk about Nelson Mandela and going home. And when we, you know, when we finally get home, they would say, and my sisters and I were like, this Mandela guy is like Santa Claus. Like, is he real? You know, I don't know about this story. Like, I don't know that we're ever going to get home. Um, but so, so for all of those reasons, because of the kind of world's love for this, you know, country, the, the sense that, you know, South Africa was like this last bastion of, you know, racism and that when the world overcame, you know, apartheid, the world would be a more just place. For all of those reasons, South Africa is home. But for you as well, Phil, I mean, your father grew up in Hong Kong and so he took you back to Hong Kong. How did you feel about Hong Kong having been born and growing up in Australia? Well, uh, Hong Kong really became home because I lived there for seven years as a child. So, um, we considered we were from Hong Kong. But it was a bit confusing because my father and his family had been in Shanghai and Hong Kong and they were British. But then we sort of became Australian because my father came, they were evacuated to Australia during the war. So we grew up in Hong Kong, my father telling everybody we were Australian, which we were, but he was actually British. So it was quite confusing. Um, And of course in Hong Kong, Everything's British in the 60s because it's a British colony. So uh, I was an Australian kid in Hong Kong and then later on I sort of reclaimed my Britishness. I got a, a, a dual citizenship, so unfortunately I'm not going to be able to be the Prime Minister. Um, but um, Didn't so, stop Tony Abbott, mate. <laughs> no, that's right. But um, So it was quite confusing. But after living in Hong Kong for all my primary schooling, basically... I thought I was from Hong Kong, and uh, which was confusing for the kids at Miami State, State High School when I arrived there at the end of 1969, and I'm standing in the playground feeling very uncomfortable, 
I've got a British accent, short hair, glasses. It's a tough, surfy drug school. Anybody go to Miami State High? It was pretty, it was pretty, Anna Bly did, yes, she did. Um, and so I'm standing in the playground and two kids walk up to me and one says to me, you don't fucking look Chinese. <laughs> and I said, I I'm not. And then the other one said, do you speak any Chinese? And I said, a little. And he said, how do you say fucking Chinese? <laughs> Do you know what? That's the first question anyone ever asked me if they asked me what I, if I could speak Indian. <laughs> Always starts Indian. with the swearing. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you must have... How did you uh, kind of become Australian again? Was it a conscious effort? Well, it was... Yeah, it took a little while because uh, after seven years in Hong Kong, uh, I mean, I didn't have any of the lingo so I became quite fascinated with Australian language so I didn't you know and my father had a quarry that was the he was in construction but he bought a quarry so as a young teenager I used to work at the quarry uh, on weekends and stuff on a Saturday or whatever and I didn't understand any of the Australian you know fair dinkum I didn't know what fair dinkum meant you know I didn't I, I wasn't able to converse in the so I became quite interested and I got one of those you know book of Australian colloquialism, yeah. and I, I boned up on all the lingo. When I was at school, they, they said, have you got any board shorts? Yeah. Had no idea what board shorts were. So it was, it was sort of, you know, it was like migrating to a country in a sense. But, it, but in, in, a, in Hong Kong, they thought we were Australian. But we were actually, by the time we got back to Australia, we were actually quite British. So what about you, Hung? I mean, you've travelled the world, but you mention in your book that you go back to Vietnam as often as you can so you can piece together, create and foster new connections so you can hopefully find somewhere you feel you belong. I mean, you've lived in Australia for most of your life. Um, why don't you feel as if you belong? Ah, oh, I belong in Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I go back to Vietnam all the time, you know, to eat fruit, you know, go, to, go to the dentist, <laughs> go to the beauty parlor. You know, you can't go to the beauty parlor in Australia. You know, people call you a puff, but um, but in Asia, hey, it doesn't matter. I do all this and eat the egg with the fetus inside. You ever eaten one of those? Yeah, you're breaking. There's a petrified duck in there. Um, but I go back. It's, I, I go back and I look for my family. You know, because my, my dad never told us anything about his family. And uh, when he died, I, I found some um, some letters that he, he kept writing to. Because in, uh, in in the 70s, when you're writing letters back to Vietnam, you have to write in code because the government read all your letters, right? And all the names are different. Everything is in code. So when, when I read it, I didn't know what was going on, who these people were. So when I went back to Vietnam, I went to his village. I had this letter... And I went to this um, uh, address, knocked on the door, and I said, you know, um, I'm, I'm related to you, and um, it's, does this person live here? And the woman said, oh, he, he ran off with another woman and slammed the door in my face. So I was like, ah. Oh. But then, you know, and I kept walking around. It was really hot because all the roads have changed and everything since, since the war. And um, 
And I saw this old lady selling water on the street, right? So I just went up to her. I had no idea. I went up to her and I said, do you know this person here on this letter? And she said, oh, yeah, it's just, just here. Just right behind where, yeah, it's just amazing that it, it's, I was just attracted to this woman where my... So it's really nice to go back and I've got to, you know, to meet new cousins and people I've never met before and they all look like me. And, um, yeah, and so every year I come back and I'm like little cousins. And it's great. And they're all fat and got big heads like me. And so, <laughs> so it's nice. It's nice to go back and learn your language and, you know, and that, that sort of stuff. It's, 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 it's nice to learn your language again, you know, because it all comes back. You know. I mean, you are lucky because I know that when – I know that when – so my mother – a lot of my mother's relatives don't actually speak English. In fact, my grandmother didn't speak English and I couldn't speak Konkanee. Um, I still felt a really deep connection to my grandmother, but I know that when I, I'm visiting my relatives in India, they're talking about me because they're speaking in Konkani and then they start laughing when they look at me. <laughs> and so I also feel a deep sense of disconnection because, you know, I am what might be, con and I can say this because I am one, I, a, a coconut. You know, I see outside, I see the world with Australian eyes. I, I think in Strine. I grew up in Australia. I watched Paul Hogan and Alexander Bunyip. And it's only when I am somewhere like, I don't know, Walgett, that I'm reminded <laughs> of where <laughs> I should really be going back to. <laughs> So I, I don't know. I, 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 there's, there always seems this kind of almost a, a, a sense that there is a there aren't always places that you can belong, especially if you're visibly different. And and Sasaki, you've lived all over the world: Zambia, Canada, Kenya, the US, and now Australia. And and your book is subtitled "A Memoir of Exile in, and Belonging." With so many places that you've lived in, even though you've always considered South Africa to be part of your identity. How do you know when you belong somewhere and, and what makes somewhere home? Mm. So it's subtitled A Memoir of Exile and Home, Not Belonging. Uh, and then Sorry, that was a typo. It's all right. Oh. It's okay. You'll forgive <laughs> this one time. Um, but, but, but I clarify that only to say uh, I, I think the act of, you know, belonging is something that uh, you come to and you can belong in places that aren't home. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like often we talk about home as if that's the only place where you can belong. I think you can, you know, belong in, multi, you know, lots of different places. Um, you know, in Australia, you're reminded all the time that you don't belong simply because of your um, skin color. And that's not something that, um, you know, people do on purpose, um, you know. And it's not always necessarily even like um, done in a... Um, a terrible, horrible, you know, um, hurtful, racist way. Um, it's a default position, right? Because this country is so monocultural uh, in its conception of itself, not in reality, right? In reality, it's very, very multicultural. But in the kind of way that Australia likes to think about itself, um, still, I think it's very monocultural. Um, so, yeah, I mean... It's just, it's, it's interesting living here. I've been here for four and a half years and starting to feel like, you know, I, I call this place home because I have a home here. Um, but even in that home, um, often feeling like I don't fully belong. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it, the idea of monoculturalism? Because I was on the shuttle from Coolangatta yesterday and um, a, a guy was talking to these German tourists about Australia. He was a Irish builder who'd been in Australia for a year. <laughs> he was telling them all about Australia, don't you worry. And the, the German lady said, but aren't all Australians, you know, apart from Aborigines, immigrants? And he said, no, no, they're not. <laughs> to be sure, they're not. The white Australians, they're, they've, they've got their own culture. They're Australian. And I was sitting there and I had to say, Gary, how long till we get to Byron, mate? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so, um, I mean, <laughs> it is interesting because we often talk about the way that many writers are kind of, they can see things more clearly from the outside and, and many writers are outsiders in the way that the characters we love in the books they write tend to be outsiders, like we all feel we may be. Um, and in his seminal essay, Imaginary Homeland, Salman Rushdie said that the no-man's land inhabited by many immigrants and their children is a fertile place to be, offering a kind of stereoscopic vision, you know, of both where their parents or they have come from and where they are now. How has your vision between places and cultures affected the way you see the world around you, Hung? What? What? <laughs> <laughs> The question was way too long. Ah. <laughs> I just wanted to show people what not to do when we get to question time, Hung. It's my second language. Say it again. Okay, so when we look at the idea of, you know, nobody ever said... So you'd be described as a Vietnamese-Australian comedian and writer. You know, I'm an Indian-Australian whatever. We don't, I don't often seem to hear, yeah. you know, Tim Winton being described as an Anglo-Australian male writer. Oh, no, He's but when I'm, Australian writer. When, I'm in, when I'm overseas, I'm, they call me Australian. Yeah, you know, the Australian comedian. When I'm overseas, when I'm, in, when, when I'm in Edinburgh, they call me an Australian comedian and I go on stage and they say, yeah, g'day, and people freak out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and when I go to Asia, when I go to Asia to do comedy and I, I say g'day and people freak out, so... Um, but yeah, here you have to call yourself a Vietnamese comedian. Yeah, I've been here forty something years. I still have to call myself a Vietnamese <laughs> comedian. Oh, 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 oh. But uh, yeah, what's the question? <laughs> it's okay. I'm not sure what the answer was, huh? <laughs> what about you, Sasanke? I mean, do you find all those different places that you've been to, like you know, Zambia was very different to Kenya. You know, America was very different to Canada. How do you find those kind of what you call inflection points yeah. um, as you move through the world, and especially since you've been in Australia? Well, I mean, it's funny because my kids are very Aussie. Like, they sound like Aussies. They're like, I have these little black Australians in my house. <laughs> and um, my sisters will call and they'll be like, is there something we can do about that? <laughs> and I'm like, hey, Annie Zang! <laughs> you, know, um, you know, chuck it in the bin. I'm like, chuck. Chuck, it's throw, you know. Um, so no, I, I, I it, it's, 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 um, it's interesting. But because when you ask them, you know, where they're from, my kids always say South Africa. 
like they're very clear, but I'm like, but you talk like an Australian and you moved here when you're three years old. So how are you South African? Like, this is a, an ongoing, you know, conversation in our household. And, and in part, what I love is that they, um, they will have the luxury to belong in a place by living there in a way that I didn't have as a child, right? Because when you're constantly moving, you don't have that physical thing where there's like people down the road who remember you and, you know, like remember you growing up and you, oh, you were this high and then you were this. I, I don't have that thing. And that's a huge part of belonging, regardless of what skin color you are, no matter what, right? Like at a very base level, like the thing that my kids will have is for people to remember them as they grew up. And I think that's gorgeous. And then they get to choose a kind of different political identity, which is what they're choosing when they say that they're South Africans. And they're deciding that they like to be outsiders, which is great, right? Um, it's a decision that they have the luxury to make because they actually belong very clearly and in a very rooted way in the same house that they've lived in since they, we, you know, we moved to Perth you know, a few years ago. So. Yeah, they're like little black surfing Aussie <laughs> fucking South Africans. <laughs> I know it's funny. Actually, I, I can't speak any Indian language, but my Indian family can't understand my Australian accent. I remember when I was younger, my uncle was taking us on a tour of southern India and we had stopped over at one point and I said, where are we going today? Are we going today? And he said, of course we're going today. Everybody must die. <laughs> but you are young, don't worry. <laughs> and because I can't speak any Indian, Indian language and they can't understand my accent, I have to do our poo from The Simpsons when I talk to them. <laughs> day, 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 day. But Australians, you know, Australians love saying, when I meet Australians, you know, they love saying, g'day China. No, they yeah. like, they yeah, love it. Right. They love it. Yeah. <laughs> G'day China. I remember the first time I heard "G'day China," I freaked out. I blew up. I said, "Me no China, me Vietnam." Like this, right? <laughs> and they go, "No, no, 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 idiots!" You know, they go, "Yeah, China. It's what is it called? Slang? Aussie sl rhyming slang? Rhyming slang? Right? They go, oh, it's rhyming slang. So, so China is short for China plate. And so when I say "G'day China," it means "G'day mate." And I'd say, oh, yeah, thanks, Rex Hunt. I did not know this. <laughs> is is that how you play this. the game? I did not know this. <laughs> News to me. I never knew. I was, like, politically correctly not saying G'day China back. Because I was like... <laughs> but it's interesting because I noticed you use the word rooted uh, latterly. And, you know, you've got to be careful with I that. I know. I know. I know. It's like someone said to me the other day, we were having a chat with some mums and she says, oh, yeah, it was a long weekend. Kids, kids were cactus in the car. <laughs> and I said, what? I had no idea what that, kids were cactus in the car. And I said, what does that even mean? But now it's, of course, become one of my favorite sayings. Cactus. But in Kenya, right? When, when, when I get to Kenya, it's, it's a place where I feel, where they make you feel at home. Really? It's amazing. I've never been to a place where people are so nice to me. They, they, they would come up and they, they would say, welcome home, hung. Oh, this, right? that's nice. And they would say, like, karibu muzungu. Yes, because you are muzungu. Welcome white man. White man, yes. Yeah, so they go, welcome white man, right? And I go, what? So I blew up. I go, oh, don't call me white man. We've just met, you know, don't be like that. 
<laughs> not, I've never been called a white man before, right? It's all, it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah, right. And well, I, actually, <laughs> I mean, in old Strine, that's a compliment. You're a real white man. Yeah, right. Yeah, you yeah, made it. Yeah. You made so, it. So I said, I, I said to them, no, don't call me white man. Look, I'm yellow. I'm yellow like this, right? And they go, they say to me, hung in Africa, if you're not black, you're white. That's right. And I said, what about those Indians over there? And they go, ah, it's just Indians. <laughs> <laughs> that <Yeah>. is true. <laughs> now, <laughs> it is interesting, though, because um, I'm still called a second-generation immigrant. Like, I was born here, but I'm a second-generation immigrant. I, didn't, I thought you emigrated once. <laughs> I didn't know you were born into immigration. <laughs> right? So, Phil... What do you think the difference between an expat and an immigrant might be? Mm, well, I don't know. Expat sounds more exotic, doesn't it? But uh, to me, I don't know really. I, I mean, we were, yeah, we were returning, so we were expats. So, um, so therefore, we weren't really immigrants, but we were. We we experienced. I experienced a lot of what immigrants might experience. Um, but um, being an expat is, uh, well, we expats like to think we're a bit special, you know. Um, if, you met, if you go overseas and you meet expats living in wherever, I don't know if anybody notices, expats all think they're pretty good, you know. Um, expats live high on the hog. Um, we, when we were expats in Hong Kong, uh, we were, I mean, we lived like, we were like we were like, we were colonials basically. We we lived. We had a driver, servants. You know, this is the expat life uh, in Hong Kong in those days. And then it all comes to a screaming halt when you come back to Australia, and <laughs> you never quite recover. Um, <laughs> I, I still like to have everything done for me. Me too. <laughs> Which is not politically correct at all, but it's just part of being... I'll make you a sandwich, Phil, later. (laughs) (laughs) I'll eat it. I I just, I wanted to pick up on Strine because you mentioned Strine. Before we came back to Australia, my father bought a book for us all to look at called Let's Talk Strine. I don't know if everybody remembers that book. And it was, had words like, Ignisha, which was air conditioner. Um, ah. Ignisha. And all, it had all these ways to, you know, <laughs> pronounce Australian words. And we were looking at this going, oh, jolly good. <laughs> I say. <laughs> In your Chinese accent. Hey, Mo Gong Ah. It, remind, it reminds me of that story where Charles Dickens's granddaughter came to Australia on a book tour in, 19, in the 1960s and she was in Dimmicks in George Street in Sydney. And um, she was sitting at the signing table with copies of her book and a woman came up to her and she said, and she looked up and, and she said, and uh, the woman said, handed the book to her and said, Emma, is it worth? And when she opened the book, it, Charles Dickens's granddaughter had written to dear Emma. Yeah. Best wishes, Charlotte Dickens. That is in the book of Strine, Emma Chizit. Emma Chizit. Emma Chizit. Yeah. yeah. 
that's Tell me, hilarious. Um, now, going back to the idea of Homeland, I mean, you know, for, for many people whose who's parents, you know, for a lot of Australians right up until the 1960s, you know, there was an idea that England was home, people went home. Um, and for many of us who grew up as the children of immigrants or pe- parents who, who grew up somewhere else, you know, home was where our parents were from. Um, but how did the idea of your parents' homeland influence or, inf- or inform your idea of home, especially when you returned to your homeland, Hung? Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. He's <laughs> <laughs> too smart for me. These questions are too smart for me. Say it again. So, I mean, you know, obviously... Speak slower. <laughs> so, for example, Sisonki's idea of South Africanness came from her parents wanting to return to South Africa and your family couldn't return to Vietnam. You've mentioned that your dad didn't talk a lot about Vietnam, but you must have had an idea before you ever went back as an adult of what Vietnam might be because of what your parents or your relatives may have said. How did I was born come? there. No, I know, but what, after you what? came to Australia and then returned to Vietnam as an adult. Yeah. How did you find <laughs> Vietnam as an adult after being in Australia? How did I find Vietnam as an adult? Sp- Don't say on a map. Yeah, yeah. I knew that. <laughs> could all see that coming. Yeah, it's, it was really hard because I speak Vietnamese like a little kid. Like, you know, I left when I was nine, so I, I was very – I had – uh, and, 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 and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I speak like a little child. I went back when I was 30, you know, 30, and, and, and you know, it's great. You know, the, 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 all the old people thought it was fantastic, but they laughed at me because I speak Vietnamese with an Australian accent. And that's, and I, I, and it's, it's hard to, because I don't look Vietnamese. And I go, I don't look like my own people over there. Vietnamese, back then in the 90s, Vietnamese people were tiny, right? And then, but now they're huge because, you know, KFC has turned up. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, it's really hard because I yeah I didn't look like my own people. Vietnamese people were coming up to me speaking Japanese. I, mean, mm. I don't speak Japanese to me, and I really wanted to learn the language. It all comes back, but I didn't have that much vocabulary, you know. And Vietnamese is such a hard language. And my dad and all his friends are very they're very they're, they're artists, you know, and they they and they speak a Vietnamese that nobody speaks anymore. Everything they say is like poetry that comes out of their mouth. And nobody speaks like that anymore. And so that's what I really wanted. I, I, I just listen. I just go and I talk to my dad's friends all the time. I just listen to them to speak, you know, speaking poetry, you know. But, uh, yeah, I, got, I try to fit in. I really, really try to fit in. But, um, yeah, yeah, but now, well, now it's okay because everyone's tall as me now. So <laughs> I, I, really, I really fit in now. Is this good? What about you? Is that the question? <laughs> Sisonki, what about you, though? I mean, you talked about Nelson Mandela being like Santa Claus and the idea of returning to this, you know, the freedom of this great project that your parents had worked for outside of South Africa, returning to South Africa. How did you reconcile, you know, what South Africa, you'd hoped South Africa would be with what it became? Yeah. It was everything that I, it was more than what I expected in those early years. It was amazing. It was like, what a wonderful time to, to sort of, you know, be raised with this notion that one day South Africa would be free and then it happens and then Mandela is free and then we go for election. You know, it was just, everything just kept happening. It was like, wow. So it was pretty great. Um, 
you know, I think, you know, you, uh, earlier you asked this question about expats, you know, and in some ways that's what it felt like coming back was feeling like an expatriate um, because we very much were this elite group of people who were living on top of the society. So we were South Africans because our parents, you know, had gone into exile, but we had been, you know, born and raised in all these other places. And we were also raised, you know, my sisters and I were very much like these kids who were raised in a revolutionary setting uh, by a very special group of people um, who knew that they were very special. So there was a particular arrogance about the a community of revolutionaries, right? You're like, I'm gonna save the country. It's like, not everybody's like, oh, I'm gonna leave my country and save it and come back. You know what I mean? Like, it's a very particular group of people who do that kind of thing. And then they raise kids who are very particular. And like, everything we did was like, oh yeah. So like, before this generation of parents who think their kids are so special, like my sisters and I were that. Right? <laughs> we were just in the wrong generation, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so we came back to South Africa really thinking we were very special. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of what has happened in the last 25 years in South Africa can be laid at the doorstep of people like us who thought we were very special and who thought we should be tr treated as special. A and we weren't. We were crap, actually. Yeah. And part of coming home is people treating you like you're normal, like you're not some kind of special person. And so, you know, there's been ups and downs with the South African story. It's a, you know, long, complicated story. But one of the best things about getting to live at home is to just be normal. And people just be like, you are not shit. You know, that's part of being at home. What about you, Phil? I mean, you had that sense that in your book you talk about not wanting to break the mythology of everything that Hong Kong had become to you while you were away, how did you feel when you first returned to Hong Kong after all those years away? I felt like uh, uh, some sort of, um, I don't know, overthrown aristocrat returning. <laughs> That's how I felt really. And uh, my first trip back was tricky because, yeah, because I'd, in the, because it was, an experience that was snatched from us. We didn't want to go back to Australia. It was decided that we we're going back. So your whole life is lost. And so it then becomes this uh, lost world, which you mythologize. And so when I, w when I first went back, my first trip back, my uncle was living back there and I had a young cousin there. And my cousin was about 12. And so I had a camera. So we went around all the old places and he had the camera and I got him to take photos of me in front of everything <laughs> like it was ridiculous here's me outside the house here's me outside the cricket club and with my cousin in tow as the uh, recording the great homecoming <laughs> and uh you know expecting a ticker tape parade at the air <laughs> some people at the airport nothing um but <laughs> i've managed to keep the whole thing intact the unreality intact because we go back fairly regularly. We're going back again in November. Um, and so for me, it hasn't ruined, you know, my memories of the past, which in many ways may be unreal. Um, but um, that's my construct and I got a book out of it, so there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, 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 to, to, para to quote J.P. Hartley, I mean, the past is another country, they do things differently there. And I, I'm reminded of that idea of nostalgia. You know, we often think of it as being some kind of sweet, bucolic, 
biscuit tin top, right? But it actually, if you look at the Greek root of nostalgia, it actually means a pain for home. At what point, you know, we've seen a lot of debate, especially in Western societies, about the idea that immigrants should fit in, that they should assimilate, that they should become more Aussie or English or American by, I guess, abandoning their culture or their ties to their homelands. At what point should we hold on to those things and at what point should do you think we should let go? Is that question too long for you, Hung? I can... <laughs> <laughs> I've over-assimilated, mate. Um, yeah, a lot of people think I've over-assimilated because I drink VB and... <laughs> And VB, VB stands for Vietnamese bogan, right? So to me... Nobody's perfect, son. No. But yeah, people say that here all the time. Oh, yeah, they come here, they don't fit in, and they try, they never fit in. You know, you, you can fit in as much as you can, but you'll never still... When, you know, when the shit hits the fan, you're still yellow. You know, you're never, you're never Australian. You know, if, I'm thinking, man, if I learn how to surf... That'll be the last thing I need to do to be Australian. But, <laughs> but you never can. I don't, I don't why? really. But why? I don't know. I didn't make it up. <laughs> I want to be Australian. <laughs> but uh, you, you never can be. But uh, maybe, maybe one day Australian will be browner. And like then we all fit in. Like it was. Like it was. years ago. <laughs> Far out. Now, I just want you to know, some of my best friends are white people. <laughs> and I love white food. Okay? I love white food. So, Sanki, I mean, you, you, your children think of themselves as South African, even though you consider them to be Australian. How important is it for you to give them a sense of that South Africanness? And how could, how could that inform their Australianness? Look, they're both, and they don't have to choose. You know, that's the great thing about the world right now. You can be whatever you want to be. But I do, you know, I think this point about assimilation is very interesting and, and true because, um, you know, I was saying it in my session earlier, so for, you forgive me for repeating the story, but, like, I, I have a very nice middle-class life. You know, I live in a 100-year worker's cottage in a very particular kind of neighborhood, <laughs> and I, we have a puppy which I walk to school in the morning with my kids, and then I go for my walk myself, and I have Lululemon pants that I wear when I do this. And Hoka, Hoka's are great, great shoes. You know, they're like really sort of great support. And, um, and I have my Yale cap, you know, just to signify my Ivy League credentials. Because you have to like beam out your, like say, you know, that you're cool, you're okay. You're not going to do anything in the neighborhood, right? So I'm doing all the, all the things to signify I'm not breaking into your house, right? And, uh, I try not to use the side gate. I, like, come out of the front door, you know. Um, so I do all these things. So I'm, like, truly assimilate. Like, the only thing I don't have is the blonde ponytail. I've got the blonde hair, but not the ponytail, right? So I do, like, all this stuff, and I feel like... Like, I am like, you know, white picket fence, like white girl material. Um, and what I get a lot in my neighborhood is a lot of smiles and double takes, you know, when I walk past with the puppy. It's like a, 
oh, you don't see that very often. <laughs> and it's like, what is it that you don't see very often, right? Because you see the pants, and you see the hawkers, and you see the cap, and like I even have like a C&M, you know, the CM, Camilla, and my, you know, the, the, it's like a uniform, right? So I'm wearing the uniform, but I'm not assimilated, right? Because that thing doesn't like fade, right? And it's, <laughs> and it's nice, like people are very nice, like it's a smile and it's a double take of like, oh, happiness, because the neighborhood is, you know, it's like a little extra <laughs> funk factor Ooh, in the Beyonce. neighborhood. <laughs> But the double take is a sign that like you don't belong, right? And I'm not, I'm not sad about it. I'm not like, you know, this is not a heartbreaking thing, but it's an interesting thing um, because it shows that, um, that assimilation is still race dependent, right? It's got nothing to do with how assimilated you actually feel, what your culture actually is, how much spaghetti you eat, right, in your house, rather than ethnic food, whatever the hell that is, right? What it has to do with in this particular society continues to be defined by the color of your skin, unfortunately, yeah. At school, I wanted to integrate so much, I had to pretend to be dumb at maths. <laughs> <laughs> I pretended so hard it came true. But, um, <laughs> it's true, hey, if you, yeah. If, if you're, you know, the, we had this Indian teacher who used to get me up to do maths on board all the time in Australia. Just, you know, they hate me for <laughs> doing long division. You know, we did long division in Vietnam when we were two, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you get here and you're 10 years old and Australians still don't know how to do long division. Oh, this is easy, you know. And then they hate you for that. So, you know, I had to pretend to be dumb at maths. So, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, I was thinking about... Um, I was reading a really wonderful essay by the brilliant Rebecca Solnit where she said that um, the deficit of privilege is obliviousness. Have, and, and I know that, um, you know, Tony Morrison talked about the idea that people of colour have to have a sense of a feeling for tone. You know, like I'm, as I, you know, I was joking about being in Walgut before, but I'm always, I don't do it consciously. I guess it's just I'm always aware, especially where I live, um, I'm the point oh 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 one percent racial diversity in Balmain, where I like to add a little bit of colour as I go about my business. But what's interesting is is that I am aware. I'm often aware when I'm being watched or looked at. Um, that a lot of people of colour would feel. Did you ever feel like that when you went to Hong, back to Hong Kong? Did you ever feel there were moments where you were the guilo, you were the one that was different or being watched, or did that happen when you came back to Australia? The most different that I ever felt was when I went to live in a small country town in Australia in 1979, a town called Monto. Anybody ever been to Monto? I had long hair, John Lennon glasses... I wore a little cap, and I moved to an Australian country town. And uh, that's the most alien I've ever felt. And uh, I was, you know, picked on uh, in the street, and uh, I, met, I felt much more alien in that experience. I just wanted to say one thing, though, about the assimilation. I'm thinking, you know, do you ever see people... You know, like, I, I think it's great that we all look to our, uh, pardon the expression, roots, 
and Anglo. I, I love digging into my Anglo-Celticness. But do you ever see people going down to the St. Patrick's Day parade and shouting at them, why don't you assimilate? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'd like you to, before I ask you to join me in thanking Phil Sasanki and, and Hung for a great conversation, you know, maybe the thing is, is it's not really about where we're from. Maybe it's about where we can go together. I remember when Malcolm Turnbull was still cool. <laughs> he said none of us can look in the mirror and say, I look like the average Australian. And for me, I've been lucky to know lots of extraordinary Australians. People who are Australian, not because of whom they worship or where their mum or dad come from or what they believe or what they eat or how they look, but because they have made a commitment to their community and to all of us to make this a better country. I think, you know, when we talk about a bigger Australia, it shouldn't just be about the GDP or productivity or population. It should be about what Paul Keating said with those golden threads that unite all of us, regardless of who our kids marry or what our grandkids may look like or sound like. The things that unite us, not just our Australianness, but our humanity, looking after each other, looking out for each other, and enriching the conversation we have in whatever accent it may be, so that the idea of Australia can become bigger and bolder and better. Please join me in thanking Sasanki, Hung and Phil. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitisfestival.com. Thank you.